yeah. Well, friends, hello, welcome to another Sounds Like Radio Library of Sound edition. Yeah, and this music, I think you know, this music means it's time for another Gene Shepherd edition of the Library of Sound. Not only is this a Gene Shepherd edition, I am going to play you another one of my own private collection of Gene Shepherd shows. I recorded this one on March 24th, 1975, from our local FM station, but the broadcast was actually a post-Thanksgiving show, originally broadcast on November 30th, 1974, so it's perfect for just after Thanksgiving listenings. <laughs> I wish they had played it right after Thanksgiving when I originally recorded. I would have liked to have heard it right after Thanksgiving instead of in March. But anyway, I'm playing it for you right after Thanksgiving from my own special tape, March 24th, 1975, when I recorded this. Oh my, I was still in high school at the time. Well, I think you're going to like it. It's all about what happens after Thanksgiving, and Gene Shepard does a little turkey bone constructing. We'll find out what happens in today's Gene Shepard on Sounds Like Radio's Library of Sound. Once again, from November 30th, originally November 30th, 1974. Let's listen. George, one of the great things I like about the post-holiday time is it's relief when it's over, right? You know, it's like getting rid of a minor operation. Did you ever have a minor operation? They always say in the news, minor operation. What does that mean? Cutting your fingernails or something? <laughs> hey, is, uh, you know, when you stop to think about it, uh, uh, cutting your fingernails is a surgical operation. It is. Getting your hair cut is a surgical operation, isn't it? Well, of course. Why don't you get your hair cut? No, not you, George. You know, George looks like a giant Brillo pad with feet. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's not bad. Hey, you know, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, the holiday scene, I, I, I was very sorry to hear the other day that a guy in Meredith, New Hampshire, and I missed the story. I can't believe I missed the story. I missed this, you know. And uh, it, a couple of days ago, it says, John Smith in Meredith, New Hampshire, was afraid to tell police there was a hippopotamus on his porch at 3 o'clock in the morning, see? Well, you heard the story, right? Did you hear about that, Jerry? You didn't hear it either? Well, apparently everybody was talking about it. Where the hell were you? I mean, that the same place I was, huh? Nowhere. Uh, because I didn't hear the story. <laughs> I mean, I bet some guys just now, someplace in the world, some guys just now hearing that World War II is over. I'll bet that's true. I, I just wonder, if you took all the people in the world, you know, how many, they said 200 trillion billion of them? How many people are there anyways? Billions anyway. I mean, sometimes when you're down at 23rd Street subway station, you got to figure it has to be 12 billion, you know, or trillion. 
I don't know how many skillions, but uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, there has to be somebody in the world right now, well, all the people, who not only doesn't know World War II is over, but didn't know there was a World War II. Nevertheless, it says this guy was afraid to tell police that there was one on his porch because he did not believe that anybody would believe him if he called. And furthermore, they would not believe him because of his name, which is John Smith. Well, now, any guy that calls up anybody and says his name is John Smith has got problems right away. You know, that's like Jane Doe or something, you know, calling up. And, and he says, I am about probably, and, and he, I quote him here because he does make a very interesting philosophical point. He says, I guess I'm about the first guy ever to get chased across his own porch at 3 o'clock in the morning in his underwear by a hippopotamus, he said. Now, that's probably a record for at least New Hampshire. That's a first. Might be he, The 450-pound hippo escaped yesterday from the Animal Forest Park, and, uh, you know, he was out just, you know, cooling around, looking for another hippo, maybe looking for a little action. You know, when you're a hippo, you don't find many friends. And uh, you may... Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, you know, the first report of a loose hippo came from a resident of Weir's Beach, wherever that is, of Laconia. By the time the police arrived, the hippo was gone. The next call came from poor old Smith, who told the sheriff's office, and we quote, there's a strange, vicious animal on my porch. See, he would not tell him it's a hippo. See, <laughs> he had to hide that. A strange, vicious animal on my porch, and I would like to have him removed. And, uh, and now, uh, you know, they, they finally came. They took a hippo away, and uh, they, uh, you know, they, the guy's still a little shattered. You know, you get up in the morning, you hear something thumping around out there, and you figure it's the raccoons again. And, uh, you know, you go out there, and this, this thing, have you ever seen a hippo? Well, you know, I mean, you gotta, you got to be honest about it. You're sitting out there being pretty smart about it, you know. But, but the, this, this, this would have to be a shattering experience because a hippo is kind of, kind of a, uh, it's, a, it's an animal that, the, first of all, he's got a mouth that's roughly the size of a bushel basket. Wouldn't you say right offhand? He's got teeth that look like big tent pegs sticking out. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I, 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 you know, I, I thought about this. I said, well, you know, that's, that's kind of a, kind of a great scene to, to have a hippo. Now, that, now, I'll say this now. On the one hand, you have to say that this would be a scary thing to happen. But on the other hand, look at it another way. This is probably the biggest thing that will ever happen in this guy's life. Now, I don't know whether you know much about uh, Meredith, New Hampshire, but not many big things happen in Meredith, New Hampshire. And for, for over, forever now, this guy will be able to talk about the time there was a hippo on his porch. He just laid that out in a party, you know, about the time I was the, the hippo. Of course, I'd say by next year this time, there ain't nobody going to believe him there was a hippo on his porch. No way. Just, be, just like, I mean, it's just like, I can hardly get anybody to believe uh, the, the story that I tell. And you know, I had a great moment the other day, speaking of hippos on the porch, a great personal moment happened to me the other day. Now, I have told a story a couple of times in the air, and every time I tell it, I get letters from people who say, all right, okay, all right, smart, you know, you, was, you, you just went once too far, you just turned the notch a little too far, how the hell do you expect me to believe that? Well, you phony, I won't, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, I, that's why I don't tell a story, I get embarrassed about it because of what, what, the, what the story's about. Well, I'll tell you what it's about. I'm a kid, see, all right? 
about, you know, and we lived in this neighborhood. There was a lot of houses in the neighborhood. There's, some people have this crazy idea that because I lived in Indiana, I must have lived in the country. At no point did I ever live in my life in the country. Not if you can call the biggest, toughest steel mill town in the, in the world the country. I mean, that's, you know, that's like calling Newark. Uh, somehow getting Newark uh, vaguely confused with, uh, say, uh, Miami Beach. It's just no way. Uh, two different ball games, you know. And, and, and so I, I'm, we're living in this big steel mill town. You know, there's thousands of houses all over the place and billboards and signs. And you didn't see much in the way of uh, what you could call uh, wildlife. A little wildlife once in a while. You know, Bruner would bring some chick home. And then his wife would get mad and hit him upside the head and that kind of stuff. Yeah, he, I never saw that in my life before again. You know, Bruner got so tanked one night, the guy who lived next door to us, he actually brought this bimbo home from the bar. I mean, brought her right home to, to the house there. And, and he just brought her right up in the house there. And there was his, his wife, Mrs. Bruner, in the kitchen. And he brings this red-headed bimbo in the house, you know, this tomato. And, and, and all of a sudden, you hear a lot of yelling, and, and he come popping out the front door like he was shot out of a gun, followed very quickly by this lady with the red hair. I want to tell you, there was yelling and hollering. I guess he was so tanked, he didn't know what he was doing. He never would have done that, you know. You agree? I mean, <laughs> but actually, you know, you could do some bad stuff in drink. I'll tell you, in, in wine, there is truth, right? In vino veritas, something like that. Well, see, the true, the true Bruner was coming out. He was actually, uh, you know, an elegant man about town. Well, hung around with ladies with red hair, you know, and he brought her right home there. Well, uh, you know, I... I it was that kind of a neighborhood, see? So you didn't see much in the way of real wild. Oh, I will say, one time, one time the, the neighborhood went into a, a state of semi-shock when uh, this uh, very large snowy owl landed in a, in a vacant lot at the back of the house there. We had this vacant lot. There were a lot of tin cans and old beer bottles and stuff there in this vacant lot, you know, old busted-up barrels and that stuff and fenders of cars and jazz. And uh, all of a sudden, the one afternoon, me and Flick and Schwartz are walking around, and, and, uh, and I said, what's that over there, Schwartz? And he said, I don't know. He says, who's that? It looked like somebody new had moved in the neighborhood. And it was uh, somebody very short, but new, you know, with funny-looking feet. And uh, we got closer, and there in the gloom was standing in the middle of this vacant lot, knee-deep in, in uh, busted-up beer bottles and stuff, was this fantastic bird. I mean, he must have been about three feet high, and he was absolutely snowy white. Well, he's kind of scary, you know, and, and uh, we ran away, and he flapped away, and he, he just took off, and he just sort of sailed off into the gloom. And, of course, the word got out very shortly around town, this big owl, uh, this big owl had landed, you know. It's a big owl, big, big eyes, you know. And, and uh, we, that was the kind of stuff we'd see one of them once in a while. But one afternoon, in this old house, now you laugh about this hippo thing, in this old house, uh, there was a, down in the middle of the next block where this old, is it time for station break now? Should I do it now? There was this old house when these, you know, in every neighborhood, there was, at that time, anyway, there, there'd be this great big fantastic old house was kind of falling apart, see? Uh, you know, you see a lot of them in, in places like Clifton today, you know, in Jersey. Great big old house with knobs of wood all over the porch and everything. It's all falling down. And there's a big sign that says for sale. It's been up there, you know, since probably year one. Who's going to buy that old, uh, you know, you couldn't heat that if you set it on fire. And uh, there's a great big old house sitting there. And nobody had lived in this house for a long time. Well, all of a sudden, these people started to move in. There's a lot of trucks out there and these people walking around. And uh, they put a fence up around the whole thing. And it was, a lot of people were there. So you couldn't figure out what they were. You had a lot of people. And they had trucks. And they had big crates and stuff. 
And it was on a big lot. The lot was uh, almost like a whole block. I had these trees around it. And uh, we used to walk past the alley in the, in, at night, see? And they had the big garage in the back there, about a three-car garage. And they had boarded it all up. And they had something going on in this garage. But they didn't have cars in it. They, something, something was really going on. And, and one day, this tremendous truck arrived. And we happened to see it, me and Schwartz. Tremendous truck. And on the back of it was a thing that looked like it was a Zeppelin. I mean, it was a truck that had an enormous tank on the back, but the tank was covered. And they pulled this tank into this, this garage. And we're watching the scene, see, guys, workmen are walking around, and they've been building something in this garage for some time. You could see the, they were bringing dirt out and bringing bricks in and stuff like that. And we figured they was building a house in the garage, some kind of a crazy thing like that, because they dug a big hole in the ground. We saw they dug a hole right in the floor of the garage. Well, now they move this truck in there. Well, there's, you know, two or three days go by, these guys are working around, and we, we, we couldn't get close to this place. Well, one afternoon, there was nobody around, and, and Schwartz and I and Bruner are walking home down through the alley, right back of the garage, coming home from school, see? And there were windows in the back of the garage, but they were kind of high up. You had to kind of stand on, on other guys' shoulders and stuff to look in, see? So we're walking along, and uh, we... we, we put a barrel or something up against the side of this thing and very sneakily, see, we jumped up on time. We're looking in there. Have you ever, you know, the peeping Tom urge is strong. <laughs> and it's, it's especially strong at a certain time in your life. Do girls have the urge to, I've never heard of a, of a peeping Mildred. It's a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm very serious. <laughs> I'm just asking that question. Is there any girls out there? Could you, could you tell me? Do girls ever have the urge to sneak up and look in somebody's house? I never heard of any doing it. Did you? You know, speaking of, uh, of uh, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking, you know, I, I got a Thanksgiving story I shouldn't tell you, but I will. It's kind of gruesome. <laughs> it really is. Uh, but uh, when I think of that, that hippopotamus... I think of the turkeys. I've had my problems with turkeys. In fact, I, I, I once appeared in one in Broadway. I mean, when you, when you really have close contact with a turkey. Hey, you know a turkey's a mean bird? I mean, a turkey isn't that friendly bird that you think he is. No, he is not. And you know another thing about turkeys? I'll bet you don't know this about turkeys. Anybody who's ever lived in Indiana knows something about turkeys because Indiana's a great turkey-growing state. And one of the most interesting things about turkeys is that the turkey is very difficult in one way to raise. Are you curious what that way is? Well, he is probably one of nature's most nervous birds. I'm serious. You know what you, know what you can do to a turkey? Uh, or a flock of turkeys is a very strange thing. If you take a flock of turkeys, you know, they flock. And so there may be, you know, 15 or 20 or 100 turkeys. And if something happens, like say if a dog gets in the middle of these turkeys, I mean some mean dog gets in and attacks one of the turkeys, and, you know, there's a whole big thing. They go, you know, they, and they flop their wings. And they, 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 they rise up off the air. Have you ever seen a turkey fly? And, you know, at night they live in trees. These turkeys will be in, in these tremendous trees. Well, if a turkey is scared... He is very prone to die of a heart attack. Did you know the turkeys literally simply die of fright constantly? So a guy's whole flock will just die because some, uh, you know, some guy drove past and blew the horn. 
Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely true. I am not inventing it. And, and, uh, and this has happened to many a guy has gone down the drain, like for, you know, for six months he's been raising turkeys for Thanksgiving, when all of a sudden some clown goes by with a big Buell air horn, and the turkeys are all sitting around, you know, turkeying around, whatever it is turkeys do, you know, they walk, they go, they have a curious humming sound, too. They go, you hear them, just waves of sound. Well, you know, here, here are these turkeys are walking around making that sound and plucking away at the corn. When all of a sudden, ooh, off goes that horn, and they just keel over. One blast of the horn, the guy's wiped out. You know, back, with, back he goes to the insurance company to work. <laughs> He's done. The turkey business is over for the year. <laughs> He's at it. Well, <laughs> you didn't know that about turkeys, did you? Well, that's what happens to them. Well, see, I, I, I uh, you know, I, 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 don't, uh, I, I don't put down animals, but uh, sometimes when you get involved with really strange animals, you, you, uh, you, you come away with a different view. Uh, of the animal world. Now, I don't know whether you've had much close contact with a hippopotamus. You know, one thing, do you know what a hippopotamus will do? You know that the hippopotamus sweats blood? Do you know that? Well, it isn't really blood. It, he, he sweats and he exudes a, a, a kind of, uh, uh, well, it's a kind of sweat, really. It's a, it's an ex a, a sort of a liquid he exudes out of the pores of his skin, but it in certain types of hippopotami, at certain times, it's blood red. <laughs> it's a strange animal. And, and he can be vicious. A hippopotamus can be a very dangerous animal, extremely dangerous. In fact, even more dangerous in many ways than the rhino. Dangerous animal and tough, and they get bad eyesight. Fantastic hearing, and they can swim like a fish. And they walk on the bottom of the water. Yeah, they actually walk on the bottom. In other words, a hippo will walk into a river, and instead of swimming out and diving, he just walks in the river, and the water just comes up, covers him up, and he just keeps walking. <laughs> He'll walk out to the middle of the river and just walk on the bottom, just like he's walking on the, on the, on the ground. And graze. They will graze on the bottom. They, they're, you know, vegetarian. They walk around. They eat the, eat the weeds on the bottom of the river. And uh, he'll graze. And have fantastic lungs. He'll stay under for, like, two weeks, it seems like, see? And then all of a sudden, he'll just slowly drift up, and he'll blow a little, uh, uh, little spume into the air, and he'll take a snort. You hear him snorting. And then, then another thing about hippos, when they walk around in the mud, uh, they love mud. And the reason they love mud is because um, mud keeps their skin damp when they're out of the water. See, they love mud, and he's sloshing around in the gooey mud, and you hear his feet. And, and all around him are these, these birds. These, the, there's a certain group of birds that live off hippos. And the hippo will walk up on the, on the ground or the mud. See, he'll stand in the mud, and he'll work his way down into the mud until finally you can just barely see his head sticking out of the mud. He's sunk in the mud now, you know? This is not water. It's mud. And then he opens his mouth wide. And there he is. He's got a great, it's like a great big mouth sticking out of the mud. Well, then what happens is these birds fly in his mouth and pick his teeth. <laughs> now, there's an animal that's got the world by the you-know-what, you know? He just lays there in the mud, and the birds come along and pick his teeth. And, you know, they, it's, a, it's a kind of a great relationship, you know? <laughs> now, why do they pick his teeth? Well, you know, he gets all kinds of weeds stuck in his teeth, you know? 
Yeah, that's right. He's got a few little clams get in there, you know, and these birds come along. And he's got teeth, you know, roughly the size of bowling pins. So, you know, he needs a lot of tooth picking, you know. And then, and these big old birds come in. Yeah, they're big birds. They're not little birds. They're big old birds come and sit right in his mouth, you know, work away there. Three or four of them will be working around a hippo. And he's just sitting there. Then, then when he, he's going to close his mouth, see, he lets him know. He goes, <clears throat> and the birds fly out, clamp his mouth, goes shut, clunk. You hear the teeth clamp down, you know. You always expect some bird, you know, they get caught. And down goes the bird. And, you know, a hippo, he loves to eat a whole loaf of bread. I don't know why I'm telling you this. He's <laughs> this esoteric about hippos. But you, nothing makes a hippo happier, see. When you, if, if you ever run into a hippo, uh, like you're coming home from the A&P, see, and somebody's hippos got away, and, and uh, he's mad. You know, they get real mad, and they bite. You know, the hippo bites, and uh, he comes along with that big mouth open, and you got this, uh, you know, this loaf of Wonder Bread under your arm. Well, you just shove the Wonder Bread in this trap, and he's going to be happy in a clam. He's going to like that, see? Just shove it right in there. He eats the whole loaf. Just one, lump, goes down like a marshmallow. And just like that. Well, then uh, he may leave you alone long enough for you to get down to the subway. You know, uh, but uh, <laughs> so uh, that's the only thing that will stop a hippo, you know, unless you got yourself a 3006. And that won't stop no hippo, no 3006. No, you need at least a 50 caliber twin, uh, flexible twin 50s. That may stop him. But even that, you know, he keeps moving just out of sheer meanness. I'm not going to lay any more hippo news on you. I mean, I know that you've heard enough. You, you just don't want to hear any more about hippos. And I don't either. I don't blame you. I don't like hippos, really. Uh, I, 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 at one time, kind of thought they were cute when I used to see them in zoos. But, uh, I, you know, it's funny how you go through those phases. I went through a giraffe phase at one time. I used to like giraffes. Did you like that? Well, I, I, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, the giraffe has got certain slobbish habits, which I did not know at the time when I became a fan of giraffes. Uh, I was out at the World's Fair. Do you remember the World's Fair in New York? And I was in this African pavilion. You, ever, you go to that one? It was great, too. It was the best, one of the best things in the fair, actually. And I'm sitting in the African pavilion, seeing I'm eating this uh, peanut soup they had there, you know? And uh, they had a sandwich there. And I'm sitting there eating a sandwich, and all of a sudden this, this gigantic head of this enormous giraffe comes right over the rail and just, you know, zap, took half the sandwich right out of my hand. Now, I, I did not know at, this, at that point the giraffes had a thing for pastrami. Well, they don't, but he ate it. Now, that, see, that's what I mean. You can't trust animals. It, according to every textbook, the, the giraffe is a vegetarian, right? Well, he ate the pastrami. He just went right down. He'd come back for more. Well, I had to move to the next seat. He was big. And he was, you know, kind of lapping up in the soup and everything. He said, here's a tongue a yard and a half long. And so you can be too close to something. Now, do you know that, you know, speaking of that, do you know that I have a friend who had a horse that liked salami? Now, that shouldn't be. I mean, uh, that shouldn't be. This, this horse would go absolutely bananas when this, you know, this, this friend would come around with a salami sandwich. Something about salami made this horse just go ape. I mean, if a horse can go ape, I don't know whether apes go horse, but nevertheless, this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this horse, his eyeballs will start rolling, and we'll go, hee, you know how they do. And, uh, and one day she says, well, all right, you want the salami, you won't like it when you get it. And the horse is going, hee. And so she sticks the salami in his trap, 
just like, you know, it was, it was a piece of hay or something. The horse chomps down on it, and he just went out of his bird. And, goop, you know, oh. And, and, and you could see he wanted more salami. She said, well, if you like that, here, try this. And she gave him another salami. By the way, on dark rye bread, in case you're curious, with mustard. And so the horse, the horse after that would wait around for the salami sandwich, and every day or two she would give him a salami sandwich. And uh, he got so that, you know, he'd hang around delis at night looking for handouts, you know, for pickles and stuff. And <laughs> but so you can't trust animals. But there are certain things that you must understand about animals. And one of them is that, uh, well, now the turkey is an animal. Now, you don't think of the turkey as an animal. Now, one of the great problems with turkeys is after you eat the turkey, what do you do with the bones? Well, I saw that problem solved one time. Now, this is a suggestion to you kids out there. I mean, if you want to really do something great, <laughs> it, it, let me tell you what a kid did. I, I was in a Boy Scout troop. See, I was in Boy Scout Troop 41. And every year, the Boy Scouts, around January, something like that, would have a big thing called a camporee. You know what is it, a camporee, George? Well, not, you know, that's like a convention of Boy Scouts is what it really is. They, it's, it's, and, and they have these, uh, these, these uh, projects and various troops coming. You know, a troop will make a big board out of a pine with, uh, with bark on it, with knots all hammered on it. Or uh, a troop will make its own computer. That's what a lot of them are doing these days, you know, which is, uh, you know, very closely related to the old idea of outdoorsmen and all. And they'll make their own computers. See, that's a, a, a Boy Scout project. We had this kid named Dick Humbert. He was kind of a kook anyway, you know. There's always, in every class, there's always a kid that studies real hard. And uh, not only he studies real hard, but he does funny things, you know, has thick glasses, you know, that kind, see. Well, Dick Humbert was that kid in our class. Never, never was part of the scene at all. But he was in Troop 41. And uh, he'd sit in the back, and he wouldn't say much, and he used to wear his hat straight on the top of his head. You know, we used to put our hat on it, a real snotty angle, you know, the Boy Scout hat. And Humbert would wear it straight on his head. And he always had a very clean neckerchief on, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he used to get the merit badge in reading, which is sort of thing, you know, the merit badge in uh, writing and correspondence. And, uh, you know, we were always trying to get a merit badge in, uh, <laughs> you know, how to fight. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, really good merit badges. So anyway, Humbert pulled a fantastic coup. Dick Humbert. Dick Humbert showed up at the camporee with an individual project that swept every, every award right off the boards. And I'll tell you what he did. Listen to this now. At Thanksgiving time, after his family had the Thanksgiving dinner, Humbert got this idea, see. And before they even had the turkey, he had the idea. And so he told everybody in the family, don't throw away any of the bones. Keep every bone, every bone, even the little bones, see. <laughs> every bone. And so, of course, now he's got this big pile of bones. And after, after Thanksgiving, turkey was all gobbled up, you know, had this great big... Uh, Platter, platter full of bones, all kinds of gristle and jazz like that. You know, it's a, you know, it's a Thanksgiving turkey, including the, the breastbone and all this stuff. Well, then at that point, he boiled it. 
he boiled it and took all the all what remained of the of, of the, uh, the the meat off the bones of this turkey until finally he had nothing but this big pile of clean bones. Well, now he went down to the library at that point, and he found in some esoteric book some kind of solution, chemical solution, that you could use to bleach bones. Now you know what bleaching bones is. It means taking all the moisture out and uh, they get white. You know, this, the, that's what, when a bone is bleached, it gets this white calcimine kind of a calcium color. See, that's a bleached bone. That's, that, well, you know, that's the classical concept of a, you know, when, you, when, when a kid gets a skeleton costume and the bones are real white, well, that's because they're bleached. Well, he found that you could get this solution. You can make up some kind of a solution. You get the stuff at the, at the uh, drugstore and you bleach these bones and he dried them out. Well, then, now he has a complete turkey skeleton, but it's in pieces, except for, you know, the backbone and stuff. But it's all in pieces. And, and when he had boiled it, even each little individual uh, bit of the backbone, you know, the, the various uh, spinal discs came apart, see? And he took out all the gristles. He did away with it, see? Nothing but bones. Fantastic job he did. And he dried them, and then he, he used some kind of a white dye or paint or ink, and he made these things absolutely snow white. Well, then he went out and he got himself a uh, some kind of a anatomy book. I don't know where you can get an anatomy book on turkeys, but <laughs> he did. And 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 he he got a he got a big board, a tremendous board, and he covered this board with green felt. Now that's that. Now this is a, this is an interesting thing too, because there's certain kinds of people that really get deeply involved in projects. I have never done this. I mean, you know, you work eight years making a model of the Andes Mountains out of toothpicks, or or you decide to build a model of the George Washington Bridge using only Yoo-Hoo bottle caps. You know, that kind of, that's a project. See, well, he covered this giant board. It was about five feet square, with with green felt. Okay, and then he took the turkey bones and mounted these turkey bones with glue, with some kind of uh, cellulose glue, so you couldn't even see the glue, but they were mounted on this board, but they were mounted in an exploded fashion. In other words, they, they were, it was like a turkey had been blown up. In other words, it was, they were all mounted in the correct position, but sort of moved out so that you could examine each bone of the turkey and he had each one labeled and then he yeah labeled oh yeah they were it was really a fantastic project and then in the middle of it he had a picture of a turkey you know of a, of a real walking around turkey in color and it was all beautifully mounted and all that and below that was a picture of a turkey skeleton well when when dick humbert laid that on troop 41 he brought it in. He didn't even say he was doing this. See, that's the and here we were working on our projects. <laughs> but Troop Forty One decided to do, you know, the usual cockamamie Boy Scout project. You know, we're going to get a collection of leaves. Uh, yeah, how about that for a great idea? We'll get a collection of leaves of the local uh, trees, and then we'll label them all. And of course, we had these crummy little leaves, and we had them. <laughs> you know, we were going to do this, and, and you know, we we thought that was really great. We were working away at it, and all those guys were collecting leaves. This is an oak tree leaf. And uh, this is a leaf of an elm. And underneath it, we'd write the, the uh, Latin term, Elmus Americanus Dumbus, or whatever it was. You know, we figured we were doing this great thing. It was very intellectual. Well, one afternoon, 
Humbert, when we're working away at our project down in the Boy Scout, our Boy Scout headquarters, by the way, in the basement of this church, Humbert lugs down the stairs with some friend of his this tremendous project. And he had never done anything in the troop before. Everybody stood around, you know, their mouths hanging open. Oh, yeah, what is it? He says, watch well, a turkey. It's a turkey? Where'd you get a turkey? Well, I got it from Thanksgiving. I saved all the bones for Thanksgiving, and I did this. Well, of course, that was a fantastic hit, and we took it into the to the to the camporee. Well, now the camporee was like a, a convention of all the local scout troops, like for for miles around. There must have been a hundred scout troops in it, see, from various troops, and they had a competition as to which troop would come up with the best with the best project. And of course, they were going for the leaves thing too. You know, they had leaves, a board with knots mounted on it, a. Uh, uh, a pillow with a picture of Hiawatha woven in real pine needles, you know, that kind of jazz. Eh? <laughs> well, a, a radio set built by the members of the troupe that actually gets a, a signal, and the, all these very big... Pro- and when Humbert's project hit this campery, it was a sensation, because it looked professional. It was magnificent, beautiful. Well, we won first prize. And, uh, you know, we're all sitting up there at the platform up there. Troop 41 wins the first. We never won a damn prize in anything before, you know. And Humbert doesn't say anything. Do you know that that project went on to the national and came in second place nationally in the awards? We got a big plaque, birds, you know, on it. And Dan Beard's uh, uh, picture in bas-relief. Tremendous. And Humbert never said any more. He just went back, sat in the back of the, back of the troop, met Danny's hat on square, you know, still trying to get his reading merit badge. And, <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's really cool. This, this guy, this guy, you, you, and you know what had happened, of course, he was probably the first guy that had discovered cool in our neighborhood. We just thought he was kind of a kook. He's just totally cool. You know? He didn't have to say anything. He just did it. Now that's cool. See, cool ain't talking, friends. Cool is doing. You buy that, George? You know, there's some guys that talk a lot about chicks. Other guys don't say nothing. They just, they just do it, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> now that's cool. And I don't know where Humbert is today, but he's, he's doing good. Someplace, you know, guys are saying, you know, one thing about Humbert, he don't say much in the meetings, but when he does, <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, when you look at those turkey bones, there's a possibility that you, too, can achieve fame through that bone. I know one guy, by the way, that used turkey thigh bones. Get this, you know, those big bones in the middle? Cut them in half like that, and he, he used a saw, a, a hacksaw, and they're hollow, you know, turkey bones. And he made a necklace for his mother out of turkey bones. She loved it. <laughs> well, he dried them. He painted them green, red, and yellow. The only thing is, he didn't know how to do it as well as Humbert, and after a couple of weeks, it was kind of gamey.
There you have it, friends, from your humble host, Personal Gene Shepherd Collection, program I recorded on March 24th of 1975. It was a post-Thanksgiving show when it was originally broadcast on November 30th, 1974. I thought it made a perfect show to go right after Thanksgiving time. I am your humble host for the Library of Sound, the Gene Shepherd Editions, and in particular, these are my private collection of Gene Shepherd, so hope you enjoyed it, friends. Till next time, then, your humble host will be back with more Gene Shepherd, more The Shadow, more Great Gildersleeve, more... Uh, I can't tell you all the stuff we're going to do. We, we, we do something different all the time, so you're just going to have to tune in. Till then, I am me saying... So long. Thanks for listening to another Library of Sound. Goodbye, everybody.